Amen. Our God is an awesome God. Amen? Entitled the message this morning, Consider the Source, and our text for the morning is Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 16 to 32. I'd encourage you to turn with me if you have uh, God's Word in printed form or on your device. Jeremiah 23, 16 to 32. And I would ask you please to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Jeremiah 23, 16 to 32. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of God. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to the people. And they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my names, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness, when I did not send them or charge them. So they will not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Father, we come to your word this morning with trembling and anticipation. We come to your word with joy to hear it. And we seek, we seek your help, Holy Spirit, in guiding us in opening this word to our hearts, in opening our hearts to this word. 
We thank you for the work that you will do today as we submit to you. We pray this to our almighty God in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, Pastor Scott made us wait until the very end of his message to deliver the customary three points that some of you feel you must have in order for your Sunday to be complete, right? I've chosen a different approach, and I'm ready to lay out a three-point sermon right now. Are you ready? Judas went and hanged himself. Go thou and do likewise. What you are about to do, do quickly. <laughs> what, no hearty amen? <laughs> Okay, I guess I'll preach a different sermon then. <laughs> Jeremiah lived and served in Jerusalem of Judah during the time of the divided kingdom. After the death of King Solomon, the ten tribes of the north refused to follow Solomon's son Rehoboam, and thus this led to a divided kingdom of Israel to the north and Judah to the south, which included Jerusalem, where Jeremiah was called by God to be a prophet both to Israel and to the nations during the years leading up to what's known as the Babylonian captivity. The book of Jeremiah takes the form of an anthology, a gathering together of Jeremiah's compiled prophecies and sermons and also of narrative accounts of the events of the time. Where the northern kingdom had hotly pursued a path of self-destruction, committing spiritual adultery by adopting foreign gods and engaging even in such grotesque practices as child sacrifice to appease these false deities, the southern kingdom soon followed suit. Despite the late reforms of good King Josiah, Judah as a culture was too far gone and slipped swiftly down the slope of disobedience and self-destruction. They consistently ignored their fundamental mission as God's chosen people to be a blessing to those without a home, a father, or a husband, immigrants, orphans, and widows. Their king and even their priests were all in bed with foreign gods, and to make matters worse, the land was full of false prophets, men who claimed to bring a good word from God, but whose promises of peace would prove empty. It was in this consensus that Jeremiah found himself called to be God's messenger and eventually an eyewitness of the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon. Now, as if all of this doesn't seem like a difficult enough job for him, we learn that Jeremiah was essentially walled in on two sides. Lest we imagine for any moment that Jeremiah might have been in some kind of a position to negotiate a settlement between the Lord and Israel, the context tells us that not only did his own people reject him and forbid him from continuing in his prophecies of judgment, he was also forbidden by God himself to make any appeal or intercession on their behalf. The divorce papers were filed, and the claim was irreconcilable differences. God's people had never earned the best track record in receptiveness to prophecy department, right? But in these days, they had doubled their guilt by actually seeking out and rewarding prophets who would tell them what they wanted to hear. And so it is with this background that Jeremiah steadfastly warns against their continuing sin 
to plead with them to return to the God of Israel and to beg them not to listen to these false prophets. Where the false prophets of Jeremiah's day and of ours have invited the wrath of God by claiming to speak for him when, in fact, speaking for themselves, there are more subtle ways that we ourselves may easily stray into this same territory. Even more subtle than the insidious God-told-me prefix that we often hear, the slippery area that I'm speaking to is more akin to bumper-sticker theology than to blatant deception. I'm speaking of that subtle abuse of Scripture wherein we claim promises made by God to other people as if they were meant for us. And this is very easy to do, especially when we encounter the second-person pronoun, you. Divorced from its context, it is natural for us to personalize such a verse, especially when it says something that we are eager to hear. Certainly, we're much less likely to appropriate verses such as this. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And to be clear, personalizing you verses isn't always wrong, provided that we understand the intent of the speaker in the original context. A few years ago, for example, I preached through the familiar passage of John chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 6, where you will recall Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. In that case, while our Savior was personally addressing those disciples present with him at the time, it is understood that he was describing the nature of the relationship which all of his followers would find their abiding in, a life-giving and a life-sustaining union between Christ the vine and those who by faith had been born again and are in him. And so sometimes you means them, and sometimes you means all y'all, or as they say in Philadelphia, use guys. <laughs> but, but spiritual discernment and, and just plain common sense are both necessary to avoid misappropriating Scripture. Let's consider another example that's right near here. In chapter 23, which we read a few moments ago, Jeremiah was prophesying against false prophets who claimed to be speaking for God but who were actually speaking for themselves. And apparently even plagiarizing one another in the process. In the surrounding chapters, he also delivered strong warnings of the inevitable conclusion if they refused to change course. He clearly and repeatedly signaled the pending invasion from the north and the destruction and captivity to follow. The great Babylon was to be God's servant in bringing judgment upon his own covenant people. Now, you turn the page, and judgment has come. Chapter 24 finds the former inhabitants of Jerusalem who, you will remember, were guilty of neglecting orphans, widows, and immigrants. Now as orphans, widows, and immigrants themselves, as Jerusalem has fallen and its surviving inhabitants exiled to Babylon. A few more pages... And we come to Jeremiah chapter 29, a chapter 
with which most of us has some passing familiarity? What reference comes to mind when I say Jeremiah 29? Jeremiah 29, 11, right? This must be one of the single most popular life verses or Facebook posts for professing Christians. I see it all the time. And it is an encouraging verse. And it speaks of hope in a way that sounds so familiar to us as New Covenant saints. But consider the context of that verse. Listen as I read this to you. This is chapter 29, Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Alasa, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live there. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Settle in, folks. You're going to be there for a while. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are professing to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. In 70 years, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. To whom is Jeremiah prophesying on God's behalf here? Verse 1 gives us our answer. To the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This prophecy is not God's promise to you. It is the silver lining, in fact, in the middle of a sobering revelation of God's 70-year plan to restore his people. But not, note, until a generation that betrayed him had all passed away. Ironically, this very verse is commonly taken out of context and often used to promote a false gospel of health and prosperity. 
not unlike the lying prophets of chapter 23, these modern prophets plagiarized the words of a true prophet, Jeremiah, to accumulate vast audiences. Now, beware of teaching that promises you your best life now. If you are in Christ, I can promise you that nothing on earth can remotely approach the life that waits you in heaven. Amen? The only way that you are living your best life now is if you are facing an eternity under the wrath of God. Consider the life of the Lord who took on the limitations of mortal flesh, lived the nomadic life of a homeless man, faced the rejection of his own people and even their authorities, was falsely accused and tried, suffered a horrific scourging and an ignominious death, was buried in a borrowed tomb, and who says to those who would seek his kingdom, pick up your cross and follow me. Remember my three points from earlier on? By taking these phrases out of context and placing them together, I was able to use the Scripture to say something that God never said. The first phrase actually sets up a new context for the second and third phrases, both of which are commands spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, this is a powerful example of how false teachers work. Now, get this. By selecting a different phrase for the first point, you can set up a different context. The options are virtually limitless. Uh, David, lay with her. Uh, uh, curse God and die. Uh, the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire. None of these are things that God wants you to do, <laughs> but extracted from their context and used as false pretexts for other texts, a false teacher might have some success in persuading an unsuspecting listener not only that he should do them, but that he should make haste. There's a technical term for this method. It's called eisegesis. Eisegesis is the practice of reading a meaning into the text. And it works like this. Number one, decide what you want to say. Number two, find passages, verses, or even phrases that taken out of their context can be used to support your hypothesis. And step three, Present the selected texts in such a way as to make your case appear to enjoy strong biblical support without drawing any unnecessary attention. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> Don't do anything to draw attention to the actual context. By all means, do everything you can to discourage your students from asking about passages that teach the exact opposite of what you're selling. Or better yet, make your message so appealing that no one in their right mind would even want to question it. While very popular in some circles, eisegesis is clearly not the best way to rightly handle the word of truth. That being said, it is worth noting that this is not necessarily what is happening. Okay, This is not necessarily what is happening when you see multiple texts being used. In the case of topical study and preaching especially, we will often consult a number of passages in order to get a broader perspective of what God says about something through Scripture. As long as the use of such texts accurately reflects their meaning by respecting their context, this is not necessarily eisegesis. Also, not all eisegesis, I'm going to say this carefully, not all eisegesis results directly in false doctrine. 
What does that word mean again? Doctrine. Doctrine is teaching. There we go. Cormie's with me. <laughs> Doctrine is teaching. Not all eisegesis results directly in false teaching. It is possible to teach a true thing using the wrong scriptures or using the right scriptures in the wrong way. This is especially true when you find an author or pastor making heavy use of paraphrases. He can teach truth from passages that do not really teach that truth, while ignoring other passages that would teach it plainly. But of this you can be assured, where false teaching is being put forth, eisegesis is never far behind. This is because while eisegesis is reading one's ideas into Scripture, exegesis is drawing God's truth out of Scripture. It is a matter of putting God's ideas and God's agenda over our own. Coming to Scripture and saying, Lord, give me eyes to see what you are saying here. And putting your own will, your own thoughts, your own agenda in subjection to the Lord's. Where eisegesis picks and chooses to make a case, exegesis brings an obedient heart and a receptive mind and lets the Lord build his own case. Yes, okay, okay, I get it. Exegesis is not eisegesis. Why the big deal? I trust the staff here to teach what is right, right? Aren't I covered in a word? No. As much as you may think that you are safe from falling prey to false prophets in the middle of the Bible Belt with ABC right down the road, Walmart is just about the same distance in the other direction. And there will most likely be false teachers roaming around there this afternoon inviting unsuspecting shoppers to their Bible study. Some of you met them last week. Show of hands. I know some of you did. There you go. These people and the organization to which they belong are followers of a false prophet from South Korea who started his cult in 1964, claiming him to be Christ the Holy Spirit. The group that he started continues to teach the lies of Christ An Sang Hong and Mother God while denying the Trinity and several other key Christian doctrines. Despite the fact that their leader died in 1985, a proven false prophet, having predicted the world would end in 1967, and then in 1988 he made an adjustment. Subsequent to his death, the organization took one more stab at it, claiming 2012 was the year. At least they had the Mayans on their side that time. Incidentally, this Mother God notion is nothing new, and I'm not just referring to Mormonism. A form of it actually makes appearance in Canaanite religion and is denounced by God in chapter 7 of this book. This is real, folks. False prophets are in our midst at Kroger and Walmart, and they're inviting your neighbors to Bible studies, wherein they will eisegete the Word of God, using it to teach things that are positively not there and convincing the unwary that they are. 
So if you came in here this morning thinking that you were safe from false prophets because you live in Beckley, West Virginia, I am here to tell you that you are mistaken. So what do you do? Stay out of the Walmart? <laughs> They're at Kroger too. First, the Lord's stern warning through Jeremiah to Israel does apply to you today. Do not listen to them. Second, know the truth. Know the truth. This, this is the best defense. The best defense from error is a firm grasp of the truth. Now that doesn't mean that you have to know every letter of this book before you walk out your front door. But it does mean that you take personal responsibility for your own spiritual growth. That includes maintaining relationships. This is so important. Maintaining relationships with others who can teach you and whom you can teach. Iron sharpens iron. Third, love them. Love them enough to hit them with both barrels, grace and truth. Maybe this means you shop with a friend so you're not overwhelmed. I'm not kidding. Two are better than one. But be prepared to tell them emphatically and lovingly that they are abusing Scripture and following a false prophet. And finally, Love your neighbor. Love and protect the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. Love the one who in their weakness, having not the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth, will be sucked right into this or some other cult if you don't reach them first. When you entered the building this morning, you should have received along with your bulletin, a card that we prepared for you to use in inviting someone to our upcoming series, The Comeback. <laughs> yeah, there he is. There's Daddy. <laughs> Would you please locate that card right now and hold it up in the air for me? Locate that card and hold it up for me. Here's my challenge to you. Close your eyes for a minute. Think right now of someone that you think the Lord might have you to invite to join you next week as we begin. I'm not talking about some random stranger. I'm talking about someone with whom you already have a relationship, perhaps a neighbor, a coworker, even someone who's done some work for you around the house. You have someone in mind? Now I'm going to ask you to turn that card face down you can open your eyes. Turn that card face down and write their name on the back of the card right now. It's all right to check with your spouse, to make uh, your sibling, to make sure you don't write the same name, but you might take that as a strong indication that the Lord's placed someone on both of your hearts. Um, in a moment, we are going to close in prayer. I've asked Cormie to come and lead us in prayer for those who will receive these cards and to ask the Lord to equip us with enough boldness and enough compassion to invite them this week without hesitation to join us as we begin this study.
But before he does, I have to ask, with every head bowed and every eye closed, do you know the Savior today? Do you know the Savior today? A few moments ago, I gave a brief summary of the life of Christ, but I left out two important elements. First, he did all of that for you. And second, his story did not end with a borrowed tomb. Rather, he rose again on the third day, which is why we worship on Sunday. He established a new covenant inviting people from every tribe and tongue and nation to trust in the sufficiency of his blood shed as the sacrifice for our sin so that we too can be raised again to eternal life. Do you know him? I plead with you, don't live your best life now. Don't find all the joy and happiness you can here on the face of this globe and then spend eternity in suffering. Jesus shed his blood for you. If that's you, going to ask you to slip up your hand. No one's looking around. It's not about a show of a hand and it's not about taking steps down an aisle. It's about what happens between you and the, the creator of this universe in your heart. If that's you today, please see Pastor Chris or me or really anyone else around you before you leave this morning. We'd like to pray with you. We'd like to give you assurance that your best life is to come. And it is far beyond anything we can ever imagine. Cormie, would you lead us in prayer, please? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, oh, God of mercy and grace, we pause to thank you for all that you have done. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word that is written in a language that we can read and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can fully understand. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we will use that written word to help us understand your truth and then be able to share that with others, with our neighbors, with members of our family, with folks that we might run into just serendipitously. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be prepared to rebuff the false prophets that are surrounding us in every direction we might look. We hear them on the radio. We see them and hear them on television. We get uh, phone calls from them. We meet them in the marketplace. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be prepared because we are familiar with who you are and what you have said to us so that we can give them, as the preacher said, give them both barrels. 
mercy, and grace. And follow it up with letting them know that we love them and wish to have fellowship with them once they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. We pray, Lord, that these cards that we've uh, taken in our hand this morning and a name that we've put on the back of that card, I pray that we will follow through and make connection with this person and let them know how much we love them by letting them know who you are and what you have done on their behalf. And we pray this in the name of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.